All that I have is yours. I'll give it. Money as an idol. We're going to look at another idol this morning. The idol of romance. Who's been in love? Oh, I love being in love. It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. All human beings long for love. Over the centuries, we have books written about love. We have songs written about love. We have poems written about love. The romantic poets used to write about their muse, this ideal, this perfect woman that they would worship, and then that was normally their mistress, and then they would have a wife. This is true. I'm not. This is if you've studied English literature. This is this is true, and then then their wife would bear the children and cook the food. And uh, wash their clothes. But the romantic muse, the ideal of romance that they worship, she was someone completely separate and normally a gorgeous looking woman. And that's how much poetry has been written over the centuries. And we have still many, many songs written about love, don't we? And normally they express the upside of being in love. Sometimes they express the downside of love. In other words, when you're longing after this person and they're not reciprocating your feelings. And those are often the most kind of uh, plaintive love songs, aren't they? When you know that the, the, the passion of your heart is not being returned by this other person. I think it was Meatloaf that said, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. Remember that song by Meatloaf? Yeah. But I think that love has been magnified to such a degree in our culture that there are many that feel that without love, without some kind of romantic relationship, even if it's a bad one, their life is not fulfilled. And so perhaps you know people in your family, friends and family, that um, are in bad relationships that are not good for them, but they're happy to be in a relationship like that just so that they can have some sense of romance in their lives. Know anyone like that? And so we find uh, musicians peddling their version of romantic love. So we have the bump and grind of Britney Spears or Beyonce on the one hand. On the other hand, the more subtle tones of Boyzone or one of the boys bands who kind of, kind of more romantic, not, not so kind of sexual, but it's all saying the same thing, isn't it? I remember, I swear by the moon and the stars in the sky. Baby face. True, isn't it? It's all just versions of what love is. So whatever your fancy, you pick from the songs. But anyway, there's a profound, profound story about romance in the Bible. We're going to look at that today. Genesis chapter 29. And uh, much of what I'm sharing is out of some reading I've been doing by a guy called Tim Keller. I want to recommend this book. It's called Counterfeit Gods. It's a profound book. If you can get hold of it, read it for yourself. But he has the story of Jacob and Leah. And I think this story shows above all that romantic love and marriage can be elevated to a godlike status in our lives. It can be an idol for many. So I'm going to read the story, the whole chapter from the English Standard Version. If it's slightly different from your version, that's okay. Here we go. It says this. Jacob went on his journey. And he came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep 
put the stone back into its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with them? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it's still hard day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well and, the wa- and then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob and Rachel, uh, Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, and Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I might go go into her, and some of the translations say lie with her, for my time is complete. Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, his daughter Leah, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpha to his daughter Leah to be his servant. And in the morning, behold, (laughs) it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what have you done to me? It's worked for seven years. It's a good question. Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it's not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the, offer, the, the other also in return for serving me for another seven years. So Jacob did so and completed her week. And Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be a servant. And Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, 
The Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me the son also. And he called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I've borne him three sons. And so his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah Vasahi. Then he ceased bearing. We know it's a beautiful story in some ways, isn't it? And all the romantics in us say, What an absolute man to serve someone for seven years for the heart of his woman. I mean, that is so romantic. Well, I want to perhaps bring a different perspective this morning. It wasn't so romantic, but it was because this man had a big, huge, gaping hole in his heart, which can, could not be filled by anything else except by the living God. He was looking in the wrong place, the wrong thing. Let's just backtrack a little bit. Know from the story of Genesis that God promised Abraham that through his seed, every nation of the world would be blessed. Remember the story of Abraham? As, as numerous as the stars are in the sky, so shall your seed be. This is the promise that give, God gives to Abraham. So actually, that line was to be passed by the oldest son from generation to generation. And that's why having sons was such a big deal. And one day the line of Messiah would come through this, this uh, seed of Abraham. And Isaac fathered, was fathered by Abraham Isaac's wife, Rebekah, had twins, Esau and Jacob. Remember the story. And God prophetically said in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, that the older of the sons would serve the younger. So God speaks this prophetic word, which actually is an incredible thing, because what it's actually saying is that the line was not, not going to come through the older son, it was going to come through the younger son. We know from the story, however, that Isaac, it says, Isaac loved Esau, and, and um, let's get it mixed up. Who is she again? Rebecca. Rebecca loved Jacob. Never love your kids one more than the other. We'll learn that today as well. Only causes problems. Okay? So Esau grows up. And what does he grow up? He's, he's the hunter. He grows up spoilt in the household. And a little bit cocky. And Jacob, because he knows that his dad doesn't love him, he doesn't have that affection that he has from his mother, from his father, he grows up cynical, bitter, and a bit of a deceiver, Jacob. And actually what he does at the end is that uh, Isaac, when it comes time to bless the sons, Jacob deceives his father and, so, and takes the blessing that should go to Esau, he takes it for himself. And so the whole thing unravels, and what happens? He's cast out from the house, he loses his inheritance, he loses the love of his mother, and he goes to his relatives. And that's where we pick up the story here with, uh, with Laban. His life basically is a complete mess. He is fouled it up completely. He loses everything that's precious to him. He's got to go and live in a foreign land. So, Jacob's family take him in. And uh, his uncle Laban hires him as a shepherd. And as we read, as they're negotiating the terms of his employment... He is, he is, man, he is consumed with this girl, Rachel, that he's, messed, uh, uh, that he's met. 
And as they're negotiating, negotiating the terms, he just says, I want your younger sister, not your younger daughter. It's interesting to me how candid the Bible is. The Bible is refreshingly candid. It always tells it as it is. And the Hebrew there literally says this, says, Rachel had a great figure. She was a lady that was absolutely physically beautiful. And it says she was beautiful. Face. Well, she's the biblical babe. I mean, she, this guy is completely, is absolutely smitten. He's head over heels. He's completely lovesick. He is overwhelmed with this girl. There's a Hebrew scholar called Robert Alter, and he wrote a commentary on this portion. He said a very interesting thing, because I'm, what I'm trying to drive at here, that perhaps there's something in Jacob that is a hole that he's trying to fill with this woman. Because it's, if you, we, we, we read the text, it says he offers to work for Laban for seven years. And the currency of that time, that was hugely more than a bride price. It was massively more than a bride price. And then we read that verse in verse 20. It says, but those seven years seemed like a day to him because he loved her. Secondly, in verse 21, he is absolutely bold. Uh, he goes in and he says, my time is, com my, my time is complete. I want your, your daughter. I want to go and lie with her. Now, just to give you a, um, an idea of how forward that was, it, I met Helen's dad for the first time when I asked him if I could marry Helen. That's just how it worked. We had a very quick courtship, right? The Bible says it's better to marry than to burn. Isn't that right? So you just get on with it. But imagine that I went to Tony and said, give me your daughter. I want to sleep with her. And by the way, pleased to meet you. But that's basically what he did. That's basically what he did. That's how, and in terms of biblical language, that was incredibly forward. In the reserve culture, it was incredibly forward. And so he goes in and he says, I want your daughter. And uh, the question to ask is, why was he like that? Well, as I've tried to point out to you, and Tim Keller points out in his book that I've been reading, he had a hole in his heart, this man. His life was completely empty. He'd never known the love of his father. He had lost the love of his mother. And he was trying to fill that hole inside of himself with this this romance, this thing that he felt for Rachel. And she began to fulfill all the longings of his heart for meaning, for affirmation, and for a sense of identity. This woman began to take that place. What is unusual about Jacob is in those days, people would marry for political power. They'd marry for social standing. They'd marry for families, would intermarry with families. He was actually marrying for love. And in that sense, he's quite refreshingly modern. I mean, isn't that what we do these days? You marry for love. You've got to marry someone you love. I mean, it would be un, unheard of that you marry someone just because someone tells you to, unless you are, come from a Muslim background or a Hindu background and there's arranged marriages. But most people marry for love these days. So he's modern in that sense. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, when we are forbidden to honor a king, people honor millionaires, athletes or film stars instead <laughs> there's always some affection that we put our heart towards are the athletes if we're not worshiping god with all our hearts it's the sportsmen it's the it's the fashion models it's the objects of power and wealth in, in terms of the world and i want to say romance is right up there it gives people a sense of significance ladies why else do you read hello magazine 
Why else do you want to know who, which Hollywood film star is marrying anyone else? It gives people a sense of significance if they know these things. Romance is elevated, isn't it? You can't agree with me, okay? This is a good, it's a good news message. And all of us, to some degree, either believe or maintain the fantasy that if we just find our soulmate, if we just find that one, I mean, all our problems are going to go away. How many of you that are married find out when you do find your soulmate, not all your problems disappear instantly? Anyone here? Or Helen and I are the only ones? It doesn't just go away. The problem is this. No lover, no human being can ever live up to that expectation because they are not meant to fulfill that expectation. That affection of your heart it should be reserved for one person only, that is Jesus. What happens when we come to a place in our lives where we begin to realize that all that ends, the result, the logical conclusion of it all is disillusionment. But still, we live in this world where romance, it seems to be a no end to this desire for romantic love. There's more sex available now than there ever was in the history of humanity. Do you know right now that the pornography industry right now is worth $1 trillion? Don't tell me people have resolved this thing. <laughs> There's no way that this, is, this issue has been resolved. People are desperate for love. They're looking for it in the wrong place. One trillion dollar industry. So we can do a number of things. We can try and avoid romantic love out of bitterness and fear. But then we're still actually being controlled by its power, aren't we? If we're trying to avoid it. Or we can be so... Uh, enamored by it, if I can put it like that, we are also controlled by it. It still assumed this kind of godlike power in our lives. The point about Jacob is that the inner emptiness had left him vulnerable. Why do you think Laban was able to exploit him like that? He worked seven years for Rachel, four times what a bride price should have been. And because Laban is unscrupulous, he takes advantage of the guy. And look at his, 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 uh, the wording of verse 19, if you want to look there right now. It say, he, Laban says, he says, it's better that you get her than some other man. Did he actually say, yes, I think you should marry her? No, he didn't. Jacob heard what he wanted to hear. He was so desperate to hear the father saying, yes, I want to give you my daughter, that he heard what he wanted to hear, even though Laban didn't actually say it. When we are so consumed with love, we start to hear what we want to hear. How many of you had broken hearts because you thought that the person said yes and actually they were trying very nicely to say no? Anyone had that story in their lives? Okay, well, Helen and I have got a unique story then. It's only the two of us. I don't think so. There's some hands. How many of you have had those kind of things in your life? Let's be honest. And so there's this thing. After seven years, it's the wedding night. He's probably had too much to drink. And the Bible says that Laban brings his daughter heavily veiled. That's what it says. It's <laughs> heavily veiled. And Jacob, he's, he's probably a little tiddly, and he wakes up in the morning, and it ain't Rachel. It's Leah. Man. Can you imagine what's going through his head 
at that time. And then casually Laban just says to him, oh, it's okay, you know, in our culture, normally the older daughter gets married off. Just work for another seven years. Finish the actual celebration this week. I'll give you Rachel. Just work for me for another seven years. And he says, yes. 14 years of his life is given. You know what the tragedy is? He was behaving like an addict. He was. Romantic love had become the drug for this man to help him to escape from his desperately unhappy life. And so Rachel had not just become a woman for him, she had become his savior. He began to see her in a way that was completely unhelpful. Why do you think the 45-year-old grows his hair, gets a tattoo, if he can afford it, buys a Ferrari, and he leaves his wife for a 20-year younger woman. What is he trying to say? I am still powerful. I am still desirable. I am still virile. I am still the man that can meet all of your needs. That's what he's saying. When I was at university, I was fascinated. Young guys would go around and they would, they would, they would absolutely attach onto these beautiful girls until they'd slept with them. And then once they'd slept with them, they'd throw them away onto the next one. Both of those scenarios are saying what? I am still desirable and have power. And the only thing that those two situations are saying, man is saying, this woman is disposable. Isn't that true? And that's what happened to Jacob. Rachel wasn't his, just his wife. She had become his savior. He needed her so badly. He only saw the things that he wanted to see. Another problem is later in his life, this kind of idolatry of his, in his heart of this romance, untold misery for his whole family. Why? He favored Rachel's sons above Leah's. What did it do? It poisoned the whole family. He literally worshiped the ground that she walked on, and that was completely unhelpful. Completely unhelpful. And for me, as I read the story, perhaps the one that evokes most compassion in my heart is Leah. I mean, she couldn't help that she, the way she was born. The Bible just says she was unsightly in some way. It says she had weak eyes. That doesn't mean that she couldn't see. Perhaps she had a squint. Perhaps she was just ugly. And the Bible's trying to say that she was competing with this goddess, sister of hers. And all her life, she had to compete for the... Maybe God's telling me I need to calm down a bit. Let me think. All these lives, her life, she's competing with this kind of supermodel. She's her daughter, her sister. And, and she, it's not her fault. It's not her fault at all. And Laban knows the problem because he's, he's wanting to marry off his, his, his daughters. And so he's probably praying for a solution. And along comes Jacob. And Jacob, he's the solution to all of these problems. The tragedy is this, is that the daughter that the father didn't want becomes the wife that the husband didn't want. It simply says in verse 30, it's powerful. It says, Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And as a result, Leah has a hole in her heart. It's interesting. What had been done to Jacob, he's doing exactly to those that are closest to him. And Leah begins to respond in exactly the way that Jacob had responded. Jacob put all the hopes of his heart on winning the love 
of Rachel. And so what does Leah do? She puts all the hopes of her heart on winning the life of Jacob. She's just not doing it by romance. She says, well, what I can do, I'm going to bear him sons. Man, I'm going to give this man sons. Then he'll love me. She tries to find a happiness in having children. And as I said before, it was a big deal to have sons in those days. Sets aside, if I can give this man sons, Jacob will love me. And as you read that portion, it is desperate. Every time she has a son, the name gives away what's really in her heart. And she's going further and further into unhappiness and desperation. Well, you might be thinking right now, how can this be a good news story? Well, what are we supposed to learn? Is there a moral from this story? I, I think what I've been beginning to understand more and more, that the Bible is not a set of little stories from which we are supposed to learn morals for our lives. The Bible is one big story that tells us all how we landed up in this absolute mess that we are in. And how Jesus came to set us free from the mess that we got ourselves into. That's the story of the Bible. And into that little big snapshot, this little story fits. Okay? And there is a lesson. The lesson is this. In our lives, there's going to be disappointment. And unless we can learn to live with disappointment, we are going to make unwise choices and live lives that are not productive and fruitful. If Jacob could have just learned that lesson. If I can just get Rachel, everything will be fine. If I can just get married, everything will be fine. You go to bed with Rachel... And you wake up with Leah every single time. Whatever else you put your hope in, instead of putting your hope in Christ, you go to bed with Rachel, and in the morning, it's Leah. It's like in Shrek, Fiona the princess, and you wake up with Fiona the ogre in the morning. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, what... Does this mean, with all due respect to this woman from which we have much to learn, it means that no matter what you put your hope in in the morning, it's always Leah, never Rachel. My friends, let's put our hope in the right things. Put our hope in the right things. C.S. Lewis said this. He wrote a wonderful book called Mere Christianity. He said this. Most people, if they really look into their own hearts, would know what they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are, there are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep quite the promise. Sorry, <laughs> they never quite keep the promise. The longing which first arises in us when we fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. And I'm not now speaking of those things that would be called ordinary or unsuccessful marriages or holidays or careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There's something we have grasped at, 
in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in reality. Your wife may be a good wife, and the hotel and scenery may be excellent, and chemistry may be an interesting job, but something has evaded us. If we put all of our weight of our expectation for our happiness onto our husband or our wife, our expectation is going to crush them completely. They cannot provide for you all the longings of your soul. The only one who can provide fully for you is Jesus Christ. That's it. You think that you've gone to bed with Rachel and you end up with Leah every time. You come to realize that there are four options open to you. I'm just going to give you four things. One, blame the things that are, uh, are disappointing you and move on to better things. Buy the Ferrari. Open your shirt and show your masculinity. Get a younger wife. Move on. That's the first option. What are you doing? By simply doing that, you're continuing the pattern of idolatry in your life. You're continuing the pattern of addiction. There ain't an option. Secondly, blame yourself. Something wrong with me. If I was just more beautiful. If I just, fuck. What does that lead to? Self-hatred, loathing, cycle just goes on and on. Can't live like that. Third option. You can blame the world. You can blame every member of the opposite sex. You can just say it's all your fault. Ladies, you can buy that t-shirt that says boys are stupid and you can wear it. All that you're telling everyone is that you're hard and cynical. Not going to solve anything. Lastly, the only option is to refocus our lives around the living Christ. The only option we have. C.S. Lewis says towards the end of that portion that I read, he says this amazing thing. He says, if I find in myself a, a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable exclamation, explanation is that I was made for another world. We are aliens. We are foreigners in this place. We are transitory through this life. I'm not saying we should love our husbands or our wives less. I'm saying we need to love them passionately with all of our hearts, but we need to love Christ more, Jesus more. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Jacob sets his heart after this romantic ideal in Rachel. Leah aims at winning her husband through having children, and both of them are completely, utterly frustrated. And the reason is that no human relationship can give you what only God can give you. All of us are imperfect. All of us are flawed. The only way we can come through those problems is to find redemption in the cross of Christ. No human can give you that. Someone said this, men use love to get sex, women use sex to get love. In all stereotypes, there's truth. That's the story of Jacob. That's the story of Leah. One man using sex, love to get sex. The other woman using sex to get love. But there is some good news in this story. And for me, this is the delightful part of the story. Leah is the one person who shows some spiritual progress throughout this whole story. It's absolutely beautiful. Some commentators point out that all of Leah's statements about God use the word Yahweh. 
Those times the colloquial word was Elohim, for God. And Yahweh was the God who revealed himself to Abraham. And later, Yahweh is the God who reveals himself to Moses. And so she cries out in her crying. She, she, in verse 32, she cries out, Yahweh has heard my misery. Not Elohim, not this cultural God that other people worship, this personal God of revelation who revealed himself to Abraham. Yahweh, he has heard my cry. There's the gospel right there. Not some abstract God of the culture. No, this personal God who loves me, he has heard my cry. The God who's revealed himself. The only way she could have heard of the name was by Jacob telling her of the promise that God had made to his grandfather, Abraham. Only way. That is exciting. I read those things of how she names each of her children. She comes to the last time and she says, no, this time I will praise the Lord. The name that she gives to her fourth child has got nothing to do with her relationship with her husband, nothing to do with her trying to win his affection through bearing of children. She just says, this time I will praise the Lord. And you know what? Something, God has done something amazing in her. And you know what? From that moment on, she gets her life back. She gets her life back. She's living from a completely different motivation. God has done something incredible in her. And I believe God wants to do that in all of our hearts, that we live from a completely different place, free from the inside out. And the wonderful thing, God also does something wonderful for her. If you read the genealogy of Jesus in, in Genesis uh, 49, and if we go to Matthew, let's go to Matthew chapter 1. This is absolutely delightful. If you know this, that's cool, but let it amaze you again, because it amazed me when I read it. Here's the record I'm reading from the NIV of the gene genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. Judah! The son of the unlovely one. The son of the one that was despised. The son of the one whose husband didn't even want her. Not Rachel the beautiful one. Not Rachel the supermodel. No. The son of Leah. The unlovely one who no one wanted. Through that line, Messiah comes. Doesn't that inspire you? Okay, well it inspires me. text says in verse 31 that we read that when God saw that Leah was hated, some translations say God loved her and opened her womb and closed the womb of Rachel. You know what he was saying in that moment to her? He was saying, I am your father. I am your bridegroom. I am the husband that you really need. I am the father to the fatherless. I, the God of, who revealed himself to Abraham, I am that to you. I want to say to you this morning, if you are unmarried, I want to say to you, God wants you to hear that this morning. That he's your bridegroom. If you still haven't found your soulmate. I want to say this to you. If you have found your soulmate, God also wants to say to you this morning that he is the true affection of your heart. He is your heavenly bridegroom. When we start to live like that, everything else changes perspective. 
19, more religious, moralistic religions, those that are successful, those that follow the rules, they climb, climb the ladder to heaven. But we serve a God who's come down from heaven into this world, and He gives grace to those that could never achieve it by themselves. He loves the poor. He loves the unlovely. He loves the unwanted. He loves the weak. He's not just a king with subjects. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. He's the heavenly bridegroom, and we are the bride. It is amen. You can stop being English for a moment. You can get excited because this is good news. This is absolutely fantastic news. And this is the way we overcome idols in our lives of money, sex, and power, and romantic love. We hear the cry of God's heart, I am your heavenly bridegroom. It's his arms that are going to hold you. It's his arms that are going to give you your heart's desire. It's his arms. If you'll hear his voice this morning, that you saying, if you turn to me, know that I, will love, I love you with all of my heart. It's not that we love our spouses less, but we know and we love God more. Interesting, when we read the story of Jesus, Jesus came to earth. He was a man that nobody wanted either. In that way, he really was Leah's son. He's coming to Christmas to celebrate Christmas. He was born in a stable in a manger. No one even knew. Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, He had no beauty about him that we should desire him in any way. That's what the scripture says. We have these Hollywood pictures of this kind of, I don't know who your George Clooney kind of lookalike Jesus. No, the Bible says, He had nothing about him that you would desire him in any way. No beauty. John 1.11 says, He came to his own, but they did not receive him. They knew him not. At the end, we know that when he's crucified, he cries out and says, Father, why have you too forsaken me? So the question about Jesus is, why would he do that? Well, I said it at the beginning, we believe that Jesus did that because he loved us. He took upon himself the fullness of our sin. When we begin to see that, we no longer start looking at other things to be our savior. Not money, not sex, not power. We don't need anything else to be our savior because our savior is Jesus. I saw this verse this week. I've never seen it before. before. Colossians 3. First four verses, Paul writes this. He says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. I want to ask you this morning, what is your life? Is your life your career? Your sporting achievements? Your wife? Is your life your children? What is your life? Where's the full affection of your heart? Jesus says he is the fullness of our life. And when he appears who is the full affection of our hearts, when he appears, we too will appear with him in glory. What is the full affection of your heart? I want to suggest to you this morning that as Leah saw that in her own life, when she came to that moment of realization, she got her life back and she started living differently. I want to tell you this morning, if that can come by revelation to you, you can get your life back, whatever is controlling you, you can put it to death by the power of the cross, you can get your life back, Start living in a different way. That's the gospel. There's only one. 
only one we can turn to who will enable us to turn from every idol in our life, every other God, every other focus, whose name is Jesus. Can you stand with me?